Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Hello, everyone. It's Tom Slater here, editor of Spiked. This typically brilliant episode of The Brendan O'Neill Show will get underway in just one moment. But before we do that, I just want to let you all know about some very exciting new additions to the Spiked website, and that is our newly relaunched and revamped donor community, where people who donate to us monthly or annually get to access all kinds of exclusive perks, including a couple brand new ones that we've just introduced. So as many of you will know, Spiked is completely free. All of our articles, our videos, our podcasts, uh, because we want anyone anywhere to be able to read us, to watch us, to listen to us, to hear our arguments. But in order to keep Spiked free, and fearless and independent with no paywall in our way or corporate paymasters to answer to. We rely on our generous readers, people who think the media is a much better place with spikes in it, to donate regularly to fund our work. And as a small token of our gratitude, we have our fabulous online donor community where you can access all kinds of brilliant benefits, which as I say, we've got some great new additions to tell you about. So now, for as little as £5 per month, you can read Spikes completely ad-free, as well as access the comment section, get invites to online events, get discounts in the shop, and much more. We also have a higher tier now, where donors can access exclusive in-person events and dinners with the Spike team, as well as get a free signed copy of every Spike book that we bring out, and there's much else besides. So, if you're not already a Spikes donor or a Spike supporter, now is the perfect time to become one. To find out more and to sign up, just go to spiked-online.com forward slash support. That's spiked-online.com forward slash support. Thank you so much. We really wouldn't be here without you. And now, back to Brendan. Trump derangement syndrome is stronger than ever. He is uh, still the central force in American politics. So the media really glories in this power they have to set discourse, and yet Donald Trump uh, blows up the entire thing. Uh, Donald Trump is something they can't control. He's something who generates, you know, a more interest than any of their attempts to stir up, uh, you know, other forms of news. And uh, the American people just feel a much greater connection, love him or hate him, to Donald Trump than they feel to all of these uh, media masters who want to guide conversation in our country. Hello, welcome back to the Brendan O'Neill Show with me, Brendan O'Neill, and my special guest this week, Daniel McCarthy. Daniel, welcome to the show. Thanks, Brendan. I'm delighted to join you. Daniel, uh, you have your finger on the pulse of American politics. People will be familiar with your writing in The Spectator, in the Modern Age Journal, lots of other places as well. So I want to ask you to take the temperature of American politics, basically. I want to find out where you think American politics is at at the moment, especially in relation to Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, whether populism still has legs in the United States. Those are the kind of things I want to ask you about in this podcast. And and to kick off, I want to ask you about Donald Trump's recent town hall with CNN, because it really did hit the headlines. It made waves over here in the UK as well. It was a pretty extraordinary event, both for how Donald Trump performed, but also the reaction to it was absolutely mind-blowing. We had AOC and other politicians saying it was a disgrace that CNN gave him airtime. We even had talking heads on CNN itself basically saying, why did we do this? So uh, given that response to a former president of the United States being on television, I wanted to start off by asking you if Trump derangement syndrome still has a grip on sections of the political and media elites in the United States. Are they really still so horrified by him that they think it's abnormal to have something, someone like him on television talking to the public? Oh, it absolutely is the case. Uh, Trump derangement syndrome is stronger than ever. Uh, but the CNN um, uh, interview showed the dilemma that the American media is facing because uh, it's not simply that Donald Trump is obviously uh, an extremely important political figure who has to be covered. 
But he's also practically the only uh, figure in American politics, or for that matter, in any aspect of American life, who generates sufficient interest and headlines to help a struggling cable news company like uh, CNN uh, actually leap to the top of the ratings. Donald Trump uh, is, I mean, he was a lifeline to the New York Times, to the Atlantic Magazine, to cable channels like CNN, and for that matter, Fox News. Donald Trump uh, practically single-handedly saved all of these old American media companies, uh, and even a lot of newer ones, uh, over the last you know five or six years. He generated far more interest than any other topic. So CNN has a tremendous market incentive to cover Donald Trump, as well as, you know, frankly, a certain civic responsibility to cover a man who not only has been president, but has a pretty good chance of being the Republican nominee and eventually becoming president again uh, starting next year. Um, But they also have this incredible cultural distaste for Donald Trump and uh, this absolute horror that uh, they're uh, trapped, that they're painted into this corner where they are dependent on him. And yet uh, they find him utterly abhorrent. And uh, you could see this internal revolt at CNN after the interview where, um, uh, you know, many CNN uh, talking heads and hosts uh, were outraged that uh, their company would do this. And uh, I think the president of CNN uh, probably is still glad he did it because, again, this was a ratings bonanza and other media companies are taking note. Uh, I think they're, you know, uh, Donald Trump is their master. Donald Trump knows how to get what he wants out of them. And uh, they have no choice but to give him airtime and give him coverage because he is uh, still the central force in American politics. So I want to come back to the question of of whether he can return to the White House, because I think this is something everyone is thinking about, not just in the United States, but around the world. It's a fascinating question. Uh, but j- just to come back to this dilemma that you raise, which I think is absolutely right, the dilemma that the, the liberal media, the woke elites more broadly, the, di- the dilemma they face is on the one hand, they get a real sense of moral purpose from hating Trump, opposing Trump, uh, depicting him as Hitler 2.0 and therefore themselves as as the new resistance. And in fact, they call themselves the resistance when Trump was in power. Um, And at the same time, they loathe him. And as you say, it's it's often a cultural distaste. It's a moral distaste, which sometimes supersedes any kind of political critique they might have. It's just this disgust for him as a person, how he behaves, how he speaks. And that dilemma, I think, uh, where they need him but also hate him has been very visible in the UK as well when there were huge protests against Trump while he was in the White House. And people really got a sense of moral, political mission from defining themselves as being against Trump. So given that difficult relationship they have with him, where on the one hand they need him to sustain their own fantasy view of themselves, but on the other hand they're so fearful of him, and particularly of the plebs who vote for him as as they would look upon uh, Trump supporters, what do you think is likely to win out in that, in the next few months, the next couple of years, in the run-up to uh, the next election? What is going to win out in that kind of contest between the power they derive from treating Trump as evil, but the fear they have of giving Trump the oxygen of publicity. You know, it's been interesting to see that uh, the attempt of social media companies like Twitter and Facebook to unperson Donald Trump, to remove him not only from their platforms, but from public discussion, uh, has utterly failed. That while Trump, uh, you know, may uh, still not be using Twitter, he's now been allowed back on, but I don't think he takes advantage of it yet. And uh, a similar situation may pertain with uh, Facebook. Uh, but Trump doesn't really need these these new media social networks in order to continue to have, uh, first of all, an enormous following within the Republican Party. And second, anytime he gets publicity from any kind of media, whether it's old or new, uh, he winds up, um, you know, sort of being the focus of all attention. Uh, the people who hate him the most are, of course, uh, riveted to their screens. Uh, and the people who love him are equally fascinated by anything that Donald Trump is doing. So again, it, it's really remarkable to see that these extremely you know, powerful companies, which think that they have, uh, you know, not only uh, the power, but also the moral duty to censor American discourse. Uh, this is newspapers that decide, you know, they get to set the agenda for the, co- the country. They get to decide, you know, what pronouns are used for people. They get to decide, uh, you know, uh, what, uh, how, how you even describe pieces of legislation. Uh, you know, if, if a law in Florida is, uh, you know, talking about uh, what's being taught in schools, uh, the media will brand it, you know, a don't say gay law. And uh, even though that's an informal nickname that the media itself came up with, 
uh, the media starts using that term as if it were, you know, the official name of the legislation and were an objective way of presenting the legislation. So the media really glories in this power they have to set discourse and to uh, sort of try to control Americans' minds by controlling language. And yet Donald Trump uh, blows up the entire thing. Uh, Donald Trump is something they can't control. He's something who generates, you know, a more interest than any of their attempts to stir up, uh, you know, other forms of news. And uh, the American people just feel a much greater connection, love him or hate him, to Donald Trump than they feel to all of these uh, media masters who want to guide conversation in our country. Yeah, that's really well put. And uh, shortly after the CNN town hall, there was a, a flurry of fury on the internet because he referred to the CNN host as a nasty person, a nasty woman. And there was an expectation that there would be a great sense of revulsion at Trump for saying this. But what I picked up was lots of people feeling a sense of relief and even taking some pleasure from the fact that uh, a politician was standing up to what they considered to be a pretty out-of-touch media class a media class that treats them in particular with contempt, i.e. ordinary working people, especially people who think of voting for Trump. Uh, the, the idea that they would be offended by Trump standing up to one of the CNN bigwigs struck me as rather uh, a, a, a bit of a fantasy. But uh, in relation to one of the things that was talked about in the CNN interview, and I wanted to get your opinions on this in particular, uh, he was really pushed on the idea that the election from uh, was stolen from him by Joe Biden. And CNN obviously wanted to haul him over the coals for his claims that the election was stolen, that it was a big swindle, that there was electoral fraud. And I wanted to get your sense of how you think that issue plays out. Now, it, se it seemed to me that Trump did, didn't really want to go down that road. And he kind of tried to push the questions aside to a certain extent, although he had a few quite funny flip responses, such as when he said, oh, I'll win the next election again, you know, hinting that he won the previous one as well. But how do you think that plays? Is, is it wise for him to stick with that question? Should he avoid it? And also the, the second uh, related question I want to ask you about that is about the hypocrisy of the idea that elections can be stolen, because we all remember Hillary Clinton and her supporters arguing that the 2016 election was hacked taken over by the Russians, people were led astray, the machinery didn't work properly. All those kinds of arguments were made by Clinton supporters back in 2016. But apparently it's outrageous that Trump made similar arguments after 2020. What's your view on how that question in particular is likely to play out? Well, and you know, as far as hypocrisy goes, uh, there are some nuances of the American Constitution and the way in which uh, the Electoral College, which is what actually determines uh, who becomes president, uh, when it votes, uh, you know, the, the meetings of the Electoral College are held in the states. Uh, the Electoral College, uh, the electors, they vote in the states. They then send the results of those votes in the states to the United States Capitol, where the process of, uh, you know, opening and counting those electoral votes takes place. All of this is quite technical. What a lot of people wouldn't know, especially around the world, but even in America, most people are not aware of this, is that the very kinds of complaints that Democrats say are uh, inappropriate uh, or were inappropriate in 2020, basically Republicans questioning whether the electoral vote was fairly uh, decided in, in some certain states and therefore whether or not these electoral votes should be counted or whether the uh, uh, Congress and the vice president should send uh, you know, the delegates back to the states, the, the electors back to the states to you know, kind of redo things and make sure they did it correctly. Democrats themselves in several elections in the last 20 years, in 2000, for example, when George W. Bush uh, narrowly defeated uh, uh, Al Gore in the electoral vote, uh, in uh, I think also in, 20, in 2004, which was not even a close uh, election, and uh, you know, in 2016 when Trump won, Democrats in Congress also wanted to try to do the same thing. They didn't get as far as the Republicans were getting in 2020. But they also tried to, to pull the same procedural level uh, levers, rather, that uh, the Republicans are trying to pull in 2020. So even at the level of procedure and what's actually at stake in something like, uh, you know, the January 6th vote counting, uh, that, too, is, is where we see hypocrisy coming from progressives and coming from Democrats. Now, I think Americans generally will not want to uh, refight the 2020 election in 2024, even if they wind up with the same candidates, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. 24 election is going to be about 2024 and the issues that are facing us now, including inflation in particular, including the Ukraine war, all of these, you know, uh, crises that are confronting the country. Uh, and I think anyone who tries to instead 
make the 2024 election about the 2020 election is going to wind up on the losing side. So Donald Trump would be smart uh, not to be relitigating or refighting that election. And it seems to me if his opponents are trying to make the 24 election all about what happened in 2020 or all about January 6th of 2021, then they will be on the losing side themselves. So just sticking with um, the malady of Trump derangement for a moment longer, um, I want to get your thoughts on all the various things that are being thrown at Trump and what they might add up to. So there's a lot There's a lot going on. There is the Stormy Daniels affair with the uh, charges being brought in Manhattan. Um, there's the uh, rape allegation uh, and a, a civil court found Trump responsible for that uh, rape. Um, there's also uh, the Durham report, the Durham report uh, by John Durham, which is an investigation of intelligence activities uh, uh, coming out of the 2016 election, uh, looking at what the FBI did in, in relation to that election and, and whether they were too harsh on Trump. And what's interesting about the Durham report, I think, is that lots of the mainstream media is basically playing down its findings and are essentially saying this blows up all the Trump conspiracy theories about a deep state attempt to weaken his power. Uh, but the Durham report, if anyone actually reads the more than 300 pages of it, actually does suggest that the FBI was a little more heavy-handed in relation to its investigations of Trump's activities than it was in relation to Hillary Clinton's activities. And it does absolutely raise questions about how the state behaved in relation to this pop this politician who was unpopular with sections of the elite. So there's a lot going on in terms of intelligence activities, charges being brought against Trump, which are very obviously political, although they masquerade as criminal or civil charges. The documents uh, controversy, the the haranguing of Trump for keeping certain top secret documents, even though top secret documents have always also been found in Joe Biden's properties. What does all this stuff being thrown at Trump add up to? Uh, do you think Trump supporters are right to see it as a deep state move against a politician? Is that going too far? How, how do you view these things? Well, it certainly does look like political desperation on the part of Trump's opponents, who are basically picking up uh, any stick that's available at hand to try to beat uh, Trump with. And the fact that they're attacking him on so many different legal fronts, which is, you know, unprecedented. You didn't see people go after George W. Bush, you know, uh, uh, on the basis of the Iraq war and, you know, war crimes. They certainly could have gone after Bush or any mem number of members of his uh, cabinet, uh, you know, after he had left office. And yet that didn't happen. Uh, you know, Barack Obama, you know, you have the Libya war, you have, you know, various uh, actions which uh, might not have been consistent with the U.S. Constitution. Uh, Barack Obama was not hounded legally after he left office. Bill Clinton, of course, had a number of, uh, you know, sexual allegations leveled against him, just as uh, Donald Trump has had. And yet uh, you didn't see this same spirit of persecution and prosecution uh, applied to uh, Bill Clinton uh, in the same way as, as with uh, Donald Trump. I should correct one thing you said, and, and it's, it's not uh, it's something that's easy to get wrong, because, of course, the way it's been reported and hyped in the U.S. media uh, leads people to get the wrong conclusion. But uh, the, the the civil judgment against Trump was not actually on rape. Mm, uh, yeah. The jury decided uh, they didn't they didn't reach a verdict on that. Uh, what they did reach a verdict on was a much broader and loosely defined charge of sexual abuse, I believe. And so, uh, you know, there's a, a civil penalty that they've, uh, you know, the jury uh, uh, ha imposed a, f a five million dollar fine. This is being appealed. Um, so even that story, which, you know, obviously is not helpful for Trump, surprisingly, it didn't wind up really affecting, uh, his polling very much. If anything, I think the polls actually showed that he then went up in, uh, you know, and I think part of that reason is because, uh, not just Trump supporters, but a lot of ordinary Americans are getting tired of seeing, you know, this attempt by, you know, Alvin Bragg, the prosecutor in New York, uh, by, you know, uh, individuals trying to sue Trump for various reasons. It just looks like uh, this is a desperate attempt uh, by political enemies and by, uh, you know, people who are out to get money uh, to, you know, to take advantage of the fact that Donald Trump is very controversial and, uh, you know, that, there, that he has plenty of enemies and plenty of people who will uh, be glad to go along with these legal attacks on him. It's very funny, too, because think about this. In 2016, progressives and liberals, you know, they were outraged. They pretended to be as, you know, aghast as it was possible to be. They were absolutely just shaken by the fact that Donald Trump would, uh, you know, have uh, supporters chanting, lock her up. 
referring to Hillary Clinton and various, uh, you know, uh, things that she had done, which were uh, bending uh, the law, so to speak, if not breaking it. Um, so just saying lock her up was an outrage back then. But of course, what you've actually seen since Donald Trump became president and now uh, in the years since he left office is uh, not just a, a chance from progressives, a chance from Democrats to lock him up, but actual attempts to use, uh, you know, any form of political power, any form of prosecutorial power they can get their hands on to really lock him up. Uh, I think that's that's just a remarkable, uh, you know, um, corruption of the American legal system. And uh, it, it goes to show the degree of political hysteria that has overtaken uh, Trump's opponents. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a, a real sense of the banana republic to some of this stuff. You know, it's it, normal, civilized, democratic countries don't tend to try to imprison a, a, a president as soon as he leaves power. That's usually what happens in countries that we wouldn't consider to be as democratic as we might like them to be. Um, you're absolutely right, of course, on the E. Jean Carroll case that was um, about assault rather than about rape. And what, one thing I found very striking about that case was I felt that there was a lot of scepticism about the claims that she made, and there was a lot of scepticism about her as a character. And I wanted to, wanted to get your sense of that, because obviously the way it's been depicted in certain um, media outlets is sexism, it's another hangover from Me Too, not only that people like Trump can behave in an allegedly sexually deranged way, but also that their supporters are willing to turn a blind eye and forgive their alleged offences against women. What do, what do you think is going on there in relation to the scepticism people have shown towards E. Jean Carroll and her claims, and the scepticism that I feel is growing around the Me Too movement more broadly, where I think some people are recognising that in some instances, at least, allegations of sexual misdemeanor or sexual offences are being used as a way of dragging people down, destroying reputations. The pointed finger is now often enough to um, ruin a, a man's reputation. Do you think people are tiring of some of these activities in, in the political public realm? Yes. And in fact, uh, the um, you know sensational trial uh, that pitted uh, Johnny Depp against Amber Heard uh, was really a turning point in this regard because uh, Amber Heard, uh, you know, seemed well. She did, uh, you know, as far as the jury was concerned, she uh, used various allegations against Johnny Depp uh, in an attempt to, um, well, first of all, to besmirch, besmirch his name in public, uh, and then, uh, you know, to try to gain uh, legal advantages, uh, you know, in in their uh, their breakup. And uh, you know, the juries uh, threw that out. They said, well, Amber Heard, uh, you know, is is the She's the offender, not the uh, you know offended party here, and uh, it's actually Johnny Depp who uh, deserves uh, damages. I think that was a turning point because um, it goes to show that the automatic belief that uh, a man accused of you know sexual misconduct uh, must be guilty, which of course is the corollary when you say that uh, you know believe women. Well, that sounds nice. You know, you want to show people the benefit of the doubt. You don't want to call people liars. But when you say automatically believe women, believe anyone who makes a charge against uh, a man, uh, what you're doing is saying automatically throw out the presumption of innocence with regard to the man and throw out, uh, you know, the, you know, uh, basic uh, rule of law considerations, basic Anglo-American uh, traditions of fair play uh, when sex and sexual abuse, uh, you know, is raised. And uh, there's, I think, a, a revulsion against uh, that kind of uh, attack on a basic principle of law. Uh, coming from progressives who, um, you know, certainly with respect to Trump, clearly have a political agenda that overrides, uh, you know, even whatever agenda they might have with respect to law and uh, sexual questions. So the American public, I think, has become very skeptical of uh, all of these kinds of questions, uh, not because they don't think that, you know, uh, horrible things are done to women, not because they think that, uh, you know, you must automatically disbelieve women, but rather because uh, they've seen the way in which uh, you know, someone like Amber Heard has uh, tried to use the system, and they've seen the way in which the media has tried to uh, hit Donald Trump, uh, you know, uh, on, on much more far-fetched charges. Uh, and, uh, you know, they look at the Jean Carroll thing, they look at uh, some very strange remarks that she has made, uh, they look at her character, and the American people say, uh, you know, this is not very convincing for us, even if it was convincing up to a point uh, for the jury that was hearing this civil case. So uh, let's talk about what about the left in the United States. And it, it would also pertain to the left in Europe, which for a long time defined itself very much through being anti-Trump. 
And they, it, there was a moment when the European left, particularly in Britain, seemed more obsessed with what Trump was doing than what their own uh, political class was doing. It was a very strange moment in, in politics. But I want to get a sense from you of how much you think the left has compromised as a consequence of its feverish hatred for Donald Trump and, it, and its Trump derangement syndrome, I guess. Because it does strike me that in not calling out some of the state activities in relation to Trump, um, some of the things that are talked about in the Durham report on the FBI's uh, response to the 2016 election, uh, the possibility that the, there was a heavy-handedness on part of uh, the state and different wings of the state to try to punish this political actor for behaving and speaking and thinking in a way that they didn't like. In failing to call that stuff out, it does strike me that the left has possibly given up on, on, on a kind of ideal it might have held to in the past, which is the ideal of democracy, the ideal of allowing people to choose who their rulers ought to be, the ideal of holding at bay the excessive power of the state in order to allow as much political freedom and political choice as possible. Do you think they've really given up on that because they're so disgusted by Trump? And will they, ever, will they ever be able to reclaim the moral high ground on those political positions? Or is it game over because of what they've done in relation to Donald Trump? You know, even though I use the term uh, the left to refer to various kinds of, uh, you know, sort of culturally radical elements uh, in the United States, the fact is, as you've described, the, um, the American left really doesn't look very much like a traditional left at all. Uh, a traditional left would be pro-labor, for example. A traditional left would be in favor of the working class. The American, you know, so-called left of today, on the other hand, really is a creature of the educated classes and is constantly generating, you know, sort of new ideological demands, new forms of new speak, for example, uh, that are coming out of America's universities and then are being uh, propagated by uh, the American media, all of which is uh, in thrall to these uh, elite concerns, as opposed to the concerns of, you know, sort of uh, lunch pail, you know, ordinary Americans who are trying to make ends meet especially in the midst of, you know, this horrible inflation uh, that we've been facing. And I know that Britain has been facing as well. The left, so-called left in America today, uh, is a defender of the police state. They're not a defender of ordinary policemen, of course. They're not a defender of the kind of p policemen who uh, stop, uh, you know, lunatics on uh, the subway or, uh, you know, violent uh, members of gangs from, you know, shooting little girls on the streets of American cities. Uh, they don't like police who stop those kinds of crimes. But what they do like is the secret police. They like, you know, the FBI. They like political investigations. Uh, they think the uh, the CIA can be to do no wrong. This horrible euphemism called the intelligence community, uh, which is, you know, meant to. It, it sounds so clubby. It sounds so nice. You know, it's oh, it's a community, and it's it's based on intelligence. No, I mean these are these are people who uh, you know lie by profession. These are people who uh, snoop by profession, and of course they're snooping on Americans. And this is uh, you know material that we've learned from any number of leakers and whistleblowers over the last uh, ten years, uh, fifteen years. Uh, you know, we know that America's spy agencies are also spying on Americans. We know that the FBI, you know, has uh, agents provocateur. Uh, you know, infiltrating all kinds of extremist groups uh, and groups that may not be extremist or may be, you know, sort of uh, uh, quite crazy, but not actually very dangerous. But then the FBI gets involved and the FBI says, hey, wouldn't you like to buy some, you know, heavy weaponry from us, you know, and uh, go and kidnap the governor of Michigan or something like that? And you'll see these, you know, sort of yokels who are involved in, uh, you know, uh, crackpot organizations, but not really uh, very effective or dangerous organizations, uh, the FBI basically tries to make them more powerful in order to, you know, make a more sensational case for the FBI to bust. Um, and yet the left supports all of this. And with the Durham report, the Durham report, you know, shows that Hillary Clinton was basically uh, collaborating with elements within the uh, intelligence community, as they call it, both in the United States and also, you know, uh, a couple of freelancing spies from the UK. Uh, she was trying to use this uh, apparatus in order to uh, win the 2016 election. And uh, it's open and shut at this point that these, you know, allegations that she was trying to promote in 2016, calling Trump a Russian agent, were completely false. And they knew they were false. And uh, it was all, uh, you know, drummed up by uh, these, uh, you know, sort of uh, intelligence agencies and freelancers uh, trying to create, uh, you know, a uh, political weapon for Hillary Clinton. And yet progressives, you know, either don't care or they, you know, support uh, these kinds of initiatives. You see the same thing happening, of course, with foreign policy. Uh, the idea of any kind of anti-war left in America 
seems utterly extinct. And uh, I mean, it really reflects uh, very poorly. You had, you know, significant anti-war protests against the Iraq war when uh, George W. Bush was president. But uh, whenever a Democrat is president, whether that is uh, Barack Obama or Joe Biden today, you don't see any kind of anti-war left. You, uh, you know, if anything, uh, certainly the members of Congress who are most critical of the blank check that America is giving to prolong the wars in uh, Ukraine, uh, that is, the criticisms are coming from Republicans. They're coming from the right. And of course, they're coming from Donald Trump. They're not coming from uh, the uh, sort of self-appointed champions of the left. And in fact, uh, among the few Democrats who do criticize American foreign policy, uh, one was a congresswoman named Tulsi Gabbard from Hawaii. And of course, Tulsi Gabbard has left the Democratic Party precisely because uh, it was not going to be consistent uh, or have any kind of support for anti-war voices. Uh, instead, the Democratic Party is on the side of, you know, a kind of uh, progressive liberal imperialism around the, the world. And it's on the side of... Um, intelligence agencies, and uh, secret police in America. Yeah, that's very well put. And as you say, that's not the left as one might have recognized a, a few decades ago. And, and in fact, in many ways, quite the opposite in, in terms of how it behaves now. Um, okay, Daniel, bringing things forward a little bit, I wanted to ask you about Trump's prospects for 2024. I, I see so many conflicting opinions on this. I see front pages of magazines that say, Trump can come back, Trump can win, he can get back into the White House. And then I see other reports saying there's just no chance. So much crap has been thrown at him. Some of it is actually stuck. His name is mud. There's no way he's ever going to get back into power. Uh, what's your view on that? Uh, uh, what would it take, do you think, to get him back into power? Would there need to be a big break? Would the Dems need to really screw up? Or do you think Trump is already, in terms of his connection with voters, the things that he's saying, the, the ideas that he's pursuing, do you think he's already on his way to a possible return to the White House in 2024? Yeah, the first thing to keep in mind when you see these uh, claims that Donald Trump can't possibly win is that this is exactly what everyone was saying in 2016 as well. The very same sources that write off Trump's chances in 2024 also thought he had absolutely no chance in 2016. And admittedly, you know, it's been seven years, so perhaps people have forgotten uh, just how, uh, you know, uh, how much of a consensus there was in uh, America's media, not just among uh, progressives and Democrat-leaning liberal media, but uh, most of the establishment mainstream conservative media also thought Donald Trump had no chance in 2016. And of course, they were all wrong. So uh, looking at 2024, I think you have to discount everyone who was wrong in 2016, which is going to wind up being about 85% of the American media, if not uh, you know, even more than that. The second thing that I think has to be taken into account, while it is certainly true that Donald Trump has very high negative ratings, uh, a lot of people don't like him, uh, a lot of the mud that's been flung at him has stuck. Uh, some of it, you know, has landed close enough to him, even if it hasn't stuck, that, uh, you know, many Americans are, are leery of him and are turned off. While all of that is true, we have to keep in mind that any Republican nominee for president is going to have mud like that thrown at him. And um, Donald Trump has taken absolutely everything that uh, the progressive media, the liberal media, the Democrats, everything they can throw at him, all the wounds they can inflict they have already inflicted, up to the point where even losing uh, this civil court case didn't affect Donald Trump's polls. All of it is now baked in. People already have fixed their view of Trump for good or for ill uh, on both sides. Uh, with any other Republican who might get the nomination next year, um, you will they will be surprised and horrified to see how high their negative ratings will be pushed by a media vilification campaign it will be just as intense as any campaign that's been waged against Donald Trump. And, um, you know, even a establishment Republican squish like uh, Mitt Romney, uh, you know, was depicted as being to the right of Adolf Hitler in the 2012 election. Uh, you know, Mitt Romney had a phrase in one of the uh, presidential debates uh, when he said that he wanted to have many more women in public office, uh, many more women appoint appointees. And he said he had binders full of women who would be, you know, sort of good people to fill government offices. Uh, this, you know, very feminist uh, point that Mitt Romney made was immediately turned into a sort of, uh, you know, a, a point of derision of, of Romney and uh, a claim that he was some sort of sexist ogre. Uh, and the, the phrase binders full of women became this cudgel with which to beat him. If even Mitt Romney is going to experience that, you can just imagine what they will do to Ron DeSantis if Ron DeSantis becomes the Republican nominee. So uh, there, too, I think uh, Donald Trump may actually be uh, in a somewhat stronger position than some of his uh, rivals. 
precisely because he has taken all, you know, he's got all the scar tissue. They've already done to him everything they can possibly do. At this point, nothing new that emerges is going to change uh, people's opinions for the worse as well as for the better. So, uh, yes, there are risks there, but there are also, uh, you know, certain invulnerabilities uh, that Trump has acquired. Then the third thing I would say is if you actually look at the data, uh, there are lots of promising signs for Donald Trump in 2024. So a lot of recent polls, for example, uh, they, they show Donald Trump performing better and winning against Joe Biden in a direct comp- competition between the two of them. And uh, Trump actually does better in a lot of these recent national polls than Ron DeSantis does. So the argument that the DeSantis supporters have been making is that he's a fresh face and uh, doesn't have all the baggage that Donald Trump has. And in a direct uh, contest with Joe Biden, uh, voters who may be, you know, uh, just personally offended by Donald Trump, uh, they'll be willing to vote for DeSantis and therefore DeSantis will do much better against Biden than Trump would. Uh, and recent polling just shows that isn't true. Uh, people, you know, tend to vote, uh, on the one hand, they tend to vote very much against the party they dislike. So, uh, you know, that's going to mean that, um, regardless of who the nominee is of either party, there's going to be a certain amount of, uh, you know, just reaction against, uh, the, 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 the identity that the party has. The second thing is that, um, there's a lot of American, uh, political social science, uh, many, you know, smart papers analyzing American elections, which say that a, a presidential election is always a referendum on the party in power. So, um, and, you know, so 2020 was a referendum on uh, re- the Republicans and how Trump was doing as president uh, at that point, uh, which of course was, you know, the height of the, the COVID pandemic and uh, the economy was uh, in basically in recession because of COVID. So in 2020, the fundamentals of all American presidential elections going back for about a century would have led you to believe that whoever the incumbent was who had those circumstances to deal with would probably lose. And indeed, uh, you know, Trump uh, wound up uh, not returning to office after 2020. So, uh, you know, the, the, politi- the, the social science was correct about that. Uh, the social science, when you apply that to 2024, it's going to be a referendum on Joe Biden's performance in office. It's going to be a referendum on the Democrats. And you look at the numbers and you look at the approval ratings for uh, Joe Biden. Uh, you look at the uh, uh, the survey results when people are asked about whether they think America's on the right track or the wrong track. You'll see that wrong track is ahead by 20 to 30 points in the polls. Uh, all of that suggests that a referendum held on whether Joe Biden should stay or go will conclude that he should go. And if uh, Donald Trump is a Republican nominee, then that means Donald Trump will probably be uh, the next president. So you've mentioned Ron DeSantis there a few times, and I want to ask you about DeSantis. Uh, I, I want to get your thoughts on the thing that is most commonly said about Ron DeSantis uh, by conservatives, I guess, by people, uh, some people on the right, which is that he does what Trump does, but he does it far more intelligently and he does it far more effectively. And he does it with a bit more grace. That's the most common argument that is made. And that, that's why some people see Ron DeSantis as, as a preferable choice for a Republican candidate. So he is cramping down on woke indoctrination in in schools. He is um, a thorn in the side of the liberal establishment in some ways. He sent um, immigrants uh, to various parts of the country to to get up the noses of Martha's Vineyard types of people. So he he does, I guess, Trump-like things in terms of uh, really sticking it to uh, the coastal elites uh, but he does it in a way, his his supporters would say, that is not as abrasive as Trump's style, not so off-putting. What's your view on that? Because it strikes me that it's possible that this discussion that is taking place between Trump, the blunt instrument of populism, and DeSantis, the kind of smooth articulator of populist ideas, I think it captures a, a larger political divide that people might be unwilling to grapple with, which is that in many cases, it was Trump, precisely Trump's style, or his lack of style, one might say, which was attractive to many voters who were sick and tired of the technocratic smoothness of an establishment that actually didn't care about their lives. So where do you stand on on, on that Trump v. DeSantis thing and, and the different approaches they take to confronting a liberal establishment that doesn't have any connection with ordinary people? DeSantis is certainly a more disciplined politician, and uh, he's very interesting because he applies uh, many more traditional forms of discipline as a politician. Uh, you know, he is indeed a smoother and uh, sort of more controlled, uh, you know, self-controlled individual than Donald Trump is, which makes him more effective when he takes on a, you know, an agenda of actually changing the way the government operates in the state of Florida uh, and taking on woke interests. He's quite effective. 
Um, that said, I do worry about, uh, first of all, the point that you raised, which is that one of the things people like intuitively about Donald Trump, certainly Donald Trump supporters like about him, is uh, the fact that he is such a disruptive personality. And uh, they look at the you know, excessive bureaucracy of the American government at every level. They look at uh, you know, the, um, the sort of tyranny uh, of opinion wielded by uh, the liberal media and by, uh, you know, the educated classes in America. And they see that Donald Trump, uh, you know, is a form of disruption against all of this. And uh, that is something that seems quite promising. The very fact that Donald Trump is a force of chaos is uh, rather liberating because chaos is, uh, you know, much better than this kind of totalistic, you know, uh, nice guy kind of control that is exerted by liberal bureaucracy in the federal government and in the media, uh, you know, and it, 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 it has a smiley face on it. Uh, I hesitate to, you know, um, uh, liken it to uh, the kinds of totalitarianism that we saw in the 20th century. But there certainly is a sense that uh, the liberals and progressives in America, they see no aspect of, you know, not only um, sort of social life and, uh, you know, human life together in community as being outside of the political realm. They see no aspect of individual personality as being outside of politics. And uh, they want to use therapeutic power and use, uh, you know, a kind of sophisticated uh, machinery of incentives and other things to change the way people think, to change the way they speak, as well as to change the way they interact with one another in everything from their marriages and personal relationships to their business relationships and, uh, uh, you know, the kinds of churches and other, you know, civil institutions that they're able to take part in. Donald Trump is uh, not someone who has, you know, perhaps the, uh, the most discipline when it comes to creating a program that will oppose that. But he does have the most, uh, you know, potential to uh, simply throw sand in the gears of the machinery and throw a spanner in the works and break down this horrible, totalistic, uh, progressive liberal machinery that uh, is, is uh, you know, really um, constricting American uh, freedom and an American, uh, you know, uh, enjoyment of life in so many ways. DeSantis, um, he also has, I think, to... Um, if he wants to be a serious uh, rival to Donald Trump for the 2024 Republican nomination, DeSantis has to get much better at talking about certain key populist issues uh, that he so far hasn't really emphasized. And that includes especially issues about trade and, uh, you know, the uh, uh, condition of working class America in many of the post-industrial states, uh, states that, you know, formerly had steel workers and shipbuilders and others and have lost a lot of those jobs recently. Uh, Florida is a sort of booming, uh, in, in many ways, postmodern, uh, you know, postmodern economy and postmodern state. Uh, it's a great state. I think Florida's got uh, a lot of charm. But Florida is quite different from New Hampshire and Pennsylvania, Michigan, states that not only will be important for the Republican nomination, but also will be absolutely critical for any Republican winning uh, the 2024 election. Those are states that Donald Trump won in 2016. He lost them in 2020. And uh, any Republican who wants to win the White House next year is going to have to win them again. I am really happy to be able to tell you that my new book is being published on the 5th of June. It's called A Heretic's Manifesto, and it is basically a blast against the conformism of our time. It covers everything from gender ideology to COVID authoritarianism to climate change hysteria, and it makes the case for having a bit more heretical thinking. It's a rallying cry for heretics. It's a rallying cry for freedom of thought. And I really think you're going to like it. You can pre-order it right now on Amazon UK or Amazon US. So do that straight away. We've also got a very special offer. Anyone who donates £50 or more to Spite will get a signed copy of the book while stocks last. To do that, go to spiked-online.com donate. Plus, if you're a Spike supporter, you can attend the online launch of the book on Monday, the 5th of June. Andrew Doyle will be interviewing me about the book and taking your questions too. So Spike supporters can sign up for that book launch right now by going to the supporters hub on Spiked. So whether you are pre-ordering the book on Amazon or donating in order to get a signed copy, don't delay. Go out and get your copy of A Heretic's Manifesto now. Thank you so much. I really hope you enjoy the book. And now on with the show. So on that question of disruption and part of Trump's attraction being that he he is a disruptive person, he throws sand in the gear of the political machine, as you say, 
Um, do you think the appetite for that kind of disruption still exists? I, I kind of to and fro on this question because it, it seems very clear to me that um, the obituaries that are frequently written for populism are all very, very premature. We see them all the time. You know, when Emmanuel Macron was elected president of France, um, the Economist here put him on the front cover, walking on water. As they, literally, they depicted him walking on water as this Christ-like liberal figure who might do down populism. Then, of course, we saw the explosion of the Gilets Jaunes in France, and there's now huge protests there against Macron in relation to his um, undemocratic pension reforms. And frequently across Europe, we've seen populism being buried before it's dead. And and we've seen populist movements rise up now in Italy, in Finland, even in Sweden, which was for a long time considered immune to these kinds of political forces. And of course, we still have Brexit, which in many ways is the defining issue of modern Europe. And Brits are generally still attached to the idea of Brexit, although there has been wavering at different points over the past few years, uh, probably as a consequence of the elite's uh, ruthless assault on Brexit. In the United States context, do you think there's still an appetite, firstly, for populism, and secondly, for Trump-style populism, which is quite distinctive? It is, as you say, um, almost knowingly unpresidential or knowingly argumentative and um, disruptive, wanting to tear things down, not necessarily wanting to build things up, but really just to push aside an elite that people are tired of. Is there still the appetite for that? Or do you think people now want something that is a bit more subdued and is a bit more sensible and might get things back on the straight and narrow? Yeah, three years ago, in the midst of the uh, beginnings of the COVID crisis, uh, I think Americans at that point were a little worried that uh, populism would not be the right way to uh, you know, address the pandemic. Uh, a lot of voters, I suspect, thought that uh, voting for Joe Biden would be a return to normality and a way to uh, go back to a, uh, you know, perhaps a uh, an unsexy and even perhaps unappealing uh, kind of political establishment, but it would at least uh, bring calm times back. And uh, what has happened since uh, Joe Biden uh, took office is that that um, sort of aspiration has been dispelled. And what people have seen is that, in fact, uh, Joe Biden has not been able to solve any of the problems that, uh, you know, in 2020, they might have attributed to Donald Trump. In fact, you know, inflation is worse uh, you know, COVID became uh, not just a, you know, uh, a brutal pandemic, but also became a pretext for building, again, a kind of totalitarian apparatus uh, in, in many American states. The public policy response to COVID uh, exacerbated the crisis and made things far worse. Uh, so Americans, uh, I think, are looking at this reassertion of establishment power uh, under Joe Biden, and they're saying this is failing. And there was a reason we chose uh, populism, you know, in 2016. And uh, I, th I think for, for a lot of people, there certainly is a desire um, to give populism uh, a more extended try now, uh, whether that's with Trump or whether that's with DeSantis. I think one of the strong cases, maybe the strongest case DeSantis makes for himself, is that he's only 44 years old. And, uh, you know, obviously Donald Trump has already served one presidential term. He can only, you know, constitutionally serve one more term. Uh, Ron DeSantis, on the other hand, if he gets elected, uh, he would be potentially able to serve eight years. He could serve, you know, two consecutive presidential terms. So if you uh, wanted to see, you know, change, policy change in a direction of populism, uh, Ron DeSantis seems young and vigorous and, uh, again, has, uh, you know, uh, an opportunity for two terms that would be consecutive and that could really uh, bring about a lot of change. That said, while I do think that populism uh, is once again looking quite good in comparison to the political establishment, especially as that establishment is embodied by Joe Biden, uh, there are a lot of Americans who, uh, you know, are willing to um, go along with this elite agenda. And, uh, you know, you see especially that Americans uh, in cities where you have had uh, Democratic Party mayors uh, in charge for a very long time and Democratic city councils, uh, it's absolutely astonishing the degree of street crime, uh, the degree of, uh, you know, taxation and regulation that uh, people in uh, cities are able to tolerate. Uh, and in fact, uh, they continue electing Democrats. We saw in the city of Chicago, for example, that uh, a Democrat who, uh, you know, uh, was a complete failure, Lori Lightfoot, she was thrown out of office, but then she was replaced by another Democrat who, in fact, is uh, even more, uh, you know, uh, pro-criminal and anti-police and uh, generally uh, is going to be even more of a scourge for ordinary working people in the city of Chicago. So that counterforce, uh, which is driven by this kind of uh, 
you know, left wing progressive liberal moralizing, uh, which says that, you know, people like Donald Trump and not just Donald Trump, but also his supporters who are deplorables, that these bad people are so awful and must be morally opposed. And therefore, you know, any degree of inflation, any degree of economic stagnation, any degree of street crime must be tolerated if that's the price that has to be paid for keeping the deplorables and keeping Donald Trump out of office. And again, I do think that DeSantis would probably find, if he did get the nomination, that uh, this same sort of desperate uh, progressive liberal uh, view that opposes any kind of uh, uh, populist force, that it would be applied to him just as much as to Donald Trump. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, you mentioned there that DeSantis is only 44 years old. Now let's talk a little bit about someone who is 80 years old, Joe Biden, um, which is an extraordinary state of affairs. 80 is quite old. Um, People focus on his age a lot. And I I guess there's an understandable element to that. But I do think that it sometimes distracts from what are his far larger problems, which is, as far as I can see, a lack of political sense, a lack of political connection with vast numbers of Americans. It always strikes me that what's very interesting is that um, Biden often goes viral for um, mixing up his words, getting his sentences wrong, forgetting where he is mid-sentence. But if you look at Kamala Harris, his much younger uh, vice president, she often speaks gibberish as well. And she has a very strange way of delivering ideas, very hollow um, speaking by numbers, which is, uh, I think, a, a very curious modern form of technocratic speak. Um, and of course, she ha- doesn't have age as an excuse. So there's obviously a lack politically when politicians speak in such a confusing fashion to, to ordinary people. But I want to ask you about how you think the Biden-Harris presidency is going. Is it um, better than you thought it would be? Worse than you thought it would be? And and in particular, I want to get your thoughts on what they've done in relation to the woke ideology, because I remember um, in the run-up to the last election, some pretty sensible and clever anti-woke liberals and anti-woke leftists, people on the progressive side of politics who don't buy into woke ideas, they were making the argument, many of them, that, look, if you want to get rid of these culture wars, the best thing to do is to vote for Joe Biden. Trump exacerbates the culture wars. He irritates the left to such a degree that they go mad and they become more and more woke. If you want to get things, as you were saying earlier, if you want to get things back to normal, even make them slightly dull again, get Biden into the White House. But of course, that's not what has happened. And Biden has turned out to be arguably America's first woke president. And I keep thinking about the way in which both Biden and Harris have flattered a person like Dylan Mulvaney, for example, Um, a young man who claims to be a woman or claims to be a girl, uh, and the White House treats him as a serious figure and treats him as if he were female. I mean, that's just one example of a rather irrational way for an an administration to behave. So in the round, how do you think Biden and Harris have done? And do you think they've exacerbated the culture wars by taking what we would consider to be the wrong side? So those two elements, uh, Joe Biden's age on the one hand and uh, his uh, actually woke performance in office on the other, uh, they are necessary complements of one another. When uh, when ordinary Americans look at Joe Biden, they see an 80-year-old white guy. Uh, you know, he claims to be an Irish Catholic and one can litigate whether or not he's actually Irish or actually Catholic. But in any case, they look at him and they say, oh, this kind of reminds me of John F. Kennedy, for example, in the 1960s. Maybe uh, reminds them in some senses of, uh, uh, you know, uh, someone like Bill Clinton. Uh, Basically, Joe Biden visually reminds Americans of an earlier Democratic Party that was uh, not nearly as woke. And certainly in the case of JFK, really wasn't woke at all. Um, And Biden is, despite uh, many of his weaknesses as a politician, one thing that is a strength of his is his understanding of traditional, um, you know, Democratic Party uh, connections to the labor movement and uh, uh, working class uh, economic policies. So Biden is uh, rather sophisticated in one respect. He tries to combine uh, certain traditional uh, labor priorities with uh, elements of the sort of green agenda and the woke agenda. Uh, We see this, for example, in uh, all of Biden's pushes for green energy, where, uh, you know, he wants to, on the one hand, supply union jobs to a lot of new manufacturing of 
solar panels and windmills and whatever. And uh, he wants to, you know, take resources away from the petroleum industry and, and by political fiat, give resources to uh, these new green energy uh, companies. And of course, uh, the market is very mercenary about this. The market, you know, if you are a uh, someone who's quite wealthy and you want to invest in something that's going to deliver a high return, a politically protected green energy sector, uh, a politically incentivized green energy sector is going to provide you with higher returns than you know, a traditional competitive uh, free market sector of petroleum or other things. So Biden is very smart in the way he's able to co-opt capitalists, he's able to co-opt labor, and he's able to advance uh, this, you know, anti-human green agenda all at the same time. Uh, so in that sense, despite Biden's age and infirmity and debilities, uh, he actually is quite potent and successful in that one regard. And because economics is such a key component of any presidential election, uh, I think that is that is Biden's lifeline. That gives him a chance of actually uh, securing uh, re-election. In other regards, however, Biden is basically a, uh, a disguise, a false front for a much more woke agenda than Americans realized they were getting when they elected him in 2020. You know, they look at Joe Biden, again, as being a reflection of what the Democratic Party was in the 20th century, a party that was working class, a party that basically stood for the idea that you could take Americans from all different backgrounds, uh, immigrants and blacks, uh, Jews, homosexuals, people from all, you know, possible variations, and you could include them in the traditional sort of white American Anglo-Saxon Protestant, uh, you know, institutions and, uh, you know, uh, sense of prosperity that, uh, you know, the uh, that, that had once been, you know, rather narrowly defined. The Democratic Party was for expanding that and including more people in it. But today, what the Democratic Party actually stands for is instead demonizing that old sense of prosperity and that old sense of pride in America that the former Democratic Party wanted to expand to new uh, demographics. The new Democratic Party says, well, uh, you, you know, these these other demographics, they shouldn't they shouldn't even try to live the American dream because the American dream is actually a nightmare of oppression. What you really need is a new woke dream of, you know, identity politics, you know, in every aspect of life with a all powerful administrative and police state uh, regulating relations between people because people are just so intrinsically hateful because of their identities, because some people are still white and some people are still Christian. All that hatred, you know, will destroy our society unless you have thoroughgoing police powers, thoroughgoing, going, uh, you know, uh, policing of language, thoroughgoing, uh, you know, psychoanalysis uh, and psychopharmacological uh, conditioning of people in order to limit their hatreds, in order to, you know, supply them with chemical happiness if they find that, uh, you know, they're very unhappy with the policing and the language policing that they're getting from progressives. This is, you know, this is the new democratic agenda. This is what woke actually means when people live it. And it is horrific. I mean, you look at uh, American rates of uh, depression and anxiety, uh, American rates of suicide and deaths of despair. All of this is being driven by what wokeism is doing to American psychology. And, uh, and it's going to get worse if Democrats are prolonged in power. But, uh, you know, there is this question. I mean, is the reaction against this going to be conscious and effective? Or is are people going to feel that they just have no choice other than to embrace what all the authorities, the media, the medical establishment and the universities, all of these experts are telling them, no, you just have to, you know, accept wokeism. Wokeism is just. And, you know, the psychopharmacological uh, industry is, is your only salvation. People might actually believe that they might be driven to such despair that they feel as if, uh, you know, that is the only future available to them. So that nicely brings me on to my last question for you, Daniel, which is about the working class in the United States. And we've touched on that in, in, in a roundabout way, but I want to ask you what you think the prospects are for any political player in the US uh, being able to appeal to, the, to working class voters in a meaningful way. Because one of the great stories of our time is class realignment in the political sphere. We've seen it in the UK where what are often referred to as left behind communities uh, really went for Brexit, really demanded a, a, a revolutionary shakeup of the of British politics. We've seen it across Europe where social democratic parties have become machines of the upper middle classes, machines of the graduate classes who pursue their own class interests through those uh, parties. And they're very distinct from the class interests of many, many working people. And, and working class voters have tended to move to the right or to more populist parties. And of course, uh, there's been a similar dynamic in the United States, and Trump was able to tap into 
um, large swathes of working class uh, America and also uh, Latino voters and black voters. And Ron DeSantis has made similar inroads in Florida, too. Uh, you talk there about Biden balancing um, the capitalist elites, uh, uh, institutions of labor, the green agenda, the woke agenda, being able to juggle all those different things. But of course, there inevitably will become a, become a breaking point in relation to that stuff. There does come a breaking point where the green agenda runs entirely counter to the interests of working class communities who want good, well-paid jobs in industry and manufacturing and energy production. And of course, the woke agenda uh, crashes up time and again against the values of working class communities, which are much more about community and loyalty and solidarity rather than this narcissistic politics of identity. So is there any political actor in the United States who can quite self-consciously tap into the disgruntlement of working class voters and create the conditions in which their views are taken more seriously on the national stage. It's been shocking the extent to which Republicans didn't learn the lessons of 2016 and or for that matter of 2020. So in 2016, uh, Donald Trump wins a number of industrial states with significant working class voting blocks, places like Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. And these states, you know, were responsible not only for electing Trump as president, but Trump wins the 2016 election with many more electoral votes, over 300 electoral votes, uh, than George W. Bush had won in 2004. And the Republican establishment, the sort of neoliberal Republican uh, leadership class, uh, you know, highly educated and in favor of globalization, uh, those Republicans point to the 2004 election as sort of the golden age. They look at that as being, you know, proof that uh, their, uh, you know, approach to politics can work. Well, in fact, in 2004, again, George W. Bush actually performed worse in terms of the electoral vote, in terms of the number of states he won than Donald Trump uh, performed in 2016. The working class, uh, you know, agenda and the bid for the working class vote really is the only future that the American right and the Republican Party have. Uh, we saw that in 2016 uh, with the way that uh, Donald Trump won the White House. We saw it even in 2020. And as you've alluded to, uh, both Latinos and also black men in particular uh, had some movement in the direction of the Republican ticket, in the direction of supporting Donald Trump. Um, and yet, what have Republicans as a party been doing to capitalize on all of this over the last seven years? Uh, if you look at, you know, uh, Mitch McConnell, leader in, of the, the Republican Party in the Senate, if you look at Kevin McCarthy, no relation to myself, uh, the Republican leader in the House of Representatives, uh, you can't say that they have a particularly pronounced working class agenda or a style of appealing to uh, working class, less educated voters. Um, the Republicans um, have abandoned, you know, their own, uh, you know, growing working class base. Um, and one reason for that is because even though uh, both in America and in the UK and in many other places, you have this idea of a local electoral representation, right? So you have a congressional district in, you know, Michigan or Pennsylvania or Alabama, wherever the case may be. And the idea is that the uh, person who's elected to Congress from that district is going to represent the interests and the culture of that district. But uh, the people who uh, wind up going to Congress are typically highly educated themselves. In fact, there was some statistic I saw recently about the number of members of Congress who have advanced degrees, so not just college degrees, but also PhDs or law degrees or medical degrees, etc. And it was quite significant. It was a very large proportion. Um, they are educated in these um, you know, universities that are uh, much more, not just left-wing, but also elite-oriented in their thinking. And so as a result, um, Congress is occupied by people who really represent uh, the universities they attended rather than representing uh, the working-class districts that may have elected them. And so uh, the Republican Party, even now, is still trying to be a neoliberal party. Uh, it's following the same path to irrelevance and extinction and destruction that we see so many center-right parties in Europe having followed. And uh, you know this reluctance to embrace populism and working-class politics is going to be fatal to the GOP. Now, that said, I do think there are a handful of, uh, you know, uh, Republican politicians who really do exemplify uh, working class concerns uh, in an effective way. I was just uh, at an event yesterday with uh, Senator J.D. Vance, who was elected from Ohio in the uh, 2022 midterms last year. And uh, J.D. Vance, I think, is an extremely promising uh, you know, Republican who understands how to appeal to working class voters and to do it, you know, effectively and to implement an agenda 
uh, that's good for them. You see uh, other uh, members of the United States Senate, uh, people like uh, Josh Hawley from Missouri, for example, who are also trying to uh, exemplify this spirit. Um, even someone like Marco Rubio, whom I have reservations about in terms of foreign policy and other things, I think he sincerely has come around in terms of his economic thinking. Uh, you know, um, now some of his plans to kind of uh, shore up the middle class with subsidies, uh, I have again reservations about. But uh, you're starting to see, at least in a few corners of the Republican Party, uh, some serious thought about a you know sort of pro-family, pro-working class agenda, uh, as opposed to a, an agenda that is always giving all the rewards of our economy to the most educated and politically connected classes. Um, so we'll see. And then Donald Trump himself, uh, you know, uh, by ter- in, in terms of his personality and in terms of some of his instinctual positions on issues like trade and foreign policy, he's able to connect with the working classes in a very effective way. I think one of the things that's going to be eye-opening in the, you know, between now and the 2024 election will be all of these Donald Trump rallies that are going to take place and have already been taking place all around the country because you see these massive crowds. It's like a rock concert where, you know, uh, thousands of people will come out to see Donald Trump in person. Uh, Joe Biden can't compete with that. It's not clear that even Ron DeSantis can compete with that. Uh, You know, that kind of direct connection with the American public uh, at rallies, at events where, you know, they're seeing and hearing from the candidate directly. uh, That's that's a wonderful thing. That is a very, you know, uh, that used to be um, a standard feature of American politics about a century ago. And has, uh, you know, decayed over time with the idea that television and radio and other media would replace that kind of direct uh, personal campaigning. Uh, I think Donald Trump, you know, is a healthy restoration of an older approach in that regard. But you're quite right. Uh, This question of populism, this question of the working class, it's hanging over the Republican Party. If they don't answer that uh, question correctly by embracing the working class, uh, the party is going to be doomed to irrelevance, which, frankly, I mean, a comfortable irrelevance is... Um, you know, quite adequate for some of these people. They'd be very happy to be, you know, on the losing side of elections, and then they get to retire and go and lobby for, you know, green energy or something, or lobby for a defense contractor. They'll make millions of dollars doing that, and they never have to return to the hometown that elected them ever again in their lives. Daniel, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Brendan O'Neill Show. We'll be back with another guest and more discussion. Don't forget to subscribe. And in the meantime, keep reading Spiked at www.spiked-online.com.